Hello and welcome back to episode 8 of the South London Press Football Pod. Back after a week's break to discuss all things Millwall, Charlton, Palace and Wimbledon. Once again, I'm joined by co-host Richard Corley. Rich, how you doing? I'm good, Edmund. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Uh, apologies for the break last week. It was, uh, well, uh, you were you were on holiday, but I suppose not really on holiday at the same time. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a short break. Uh, without going anywhere, um, we did have our office Christmas Day as yeah. well at the back end of that week. We would have recorded before and anyway, but it's a bit like footballers that are ahead of the Christmas period in terms of the pod. We took a break just to refresh and recharge, but it doesn't mean we're going to perform any better, I wouldn't have thought. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, so we're back. We're back and we're, we're, we're probably have at least one more. Um, and then Christmas New Year might be a little bit tricky with the games uh, to, to get one in, but we'll we'll see how we go. Yeah, uh, we're going to jump straight into Millwall and reflect on their 3-2 defeat at Leicester last night. A game of two halves, really, a little bit of a cliche, but I think I saw someone on, on Twitter describe it as their best 45 and their worst 45, all sort of wrapped into to one game. What did you make of it, Rich? Yeah, I think um, uh, Dan, Dan Marsh actually did the report for the paper, um, in today's paper, and um, Dan sort of um, said that the sort of Mill haven't so far put in two sort of really solid 45s back to back. I mean, maybe the what is the one that maybe is the difference to that potentially is Sheffield Wednesday. But um, I thought first half Millwall played played well. It was almost the perfect away sort of first half performance. They set up in a 5-2-1-2. Um, they kind of uh, made sure they had more energy in there with people like Alan Campbell and George Honeyman. Duncan Watmore, I thought, was really good in the first 45 minutes as well. And they scored a really nicely well-worked goal. Murray Wallace, a couple of big moments in the goal, actually. He wins an initial header that's a cross-field ball. And then um, when the ball's worked back to him, he actually feints it to take away his marker. And then it's a lovely ball in that Bradshaw, Tom Bradshaw, sort of guides, guides past the Leicester keeper. And to be fair, after that, Millwall had a couple more chances. They probably had the better chances in the first half apart from the fact that they got away with what looked, with replays, a stonewall penalty, Wes mm. Harding um, bringing down the, the Leicester winger. Um, and he was already on a yellow card, so it would have been a penalty and potentially a red. The big problem they had was the second half. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've had a really solid first 45 minutes. You then don't want to concede early on. And the opening goal... I mean, Matthias Sarkic comes for it. He's nowhere near it. Uh, it's a bad mistake, really. And then from there, the the second goal, again, the cross that actually loops over Sarkic, I think when the goalkeeper's on his line and he's still protecting his goal, you would expect him probably to catch it or make some kind of punch or connection with it. And all of a sudden, the game's quickly turned round. I didn't think, when you look at it, uh, You'd always expect Leicester to have the possession. I mean, they've had it in virtually every single game uh, this season, but they had 78% possession in the game. 
uh, I think it was 780, I can't read my writing here, 780 something passes completed. That's the most they've had in any game uh, that they've had at home this season. Uh, they've had a few that have been 700s and 600s. But um, Millwall's XG, people people don't really like XG, but Millwall's XG was was 1.37, which was mm. which is fairly decent compared with a lot of the teams that have gone there. And when people think that XG doesn't really matter too much, I would make the point, I've been doing a bit of homework this week, Millwall have had six games with higher XG this season and four of those have been games they've won. Uh, Barra, Rotherham, Plymouth and Sheffield Wednesday. Um, so when people think that it doesn't really mean that much. I think it does indicate the quality of chances that you create. Um, in saying that, Leicester's XG was two 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 point zero five. So, I yeah. Once the third goal went in, it's deflected goal, and yeah, that could go anywhere. When you look at its deflected goal and two defensive errors, it's, it's so costly. You know, the goal at the end gives them a bit of hope. Um, that they can retrieve something. On, on paper, it doesn't look a bad result, 3-2. Um, and it wasn't a totally terrible performance, but there's now big, big pressure going into these next round of matches. I think it would sort of be just to, to touch on the starting lineup in terms of reflecting on last night's game. Obviously, the big call that Joe Edwards made, I think it was five changes in total to the, the starting lineup, was taking out star player from last season, Zian Fleming, and bringing in, was it George Honeyman who played behind the sort of strikers? Yeah. yeah. What, what did you make of that? I can see why he did it, because I think uh, with Zian, if he's if he's not contributing in the final third in terms of goals and, and everything else, uh, you know, if you want to press and you want to work hard off the ball and be industrious, which is what they needed to be at Leicester, I can see why Zian Fleming is a player that goes onto the bench. I don't think you can make any kind of bones about it. It's not been a good season for him so far. He hasn't been affecting games. He's been struggling to make any kind of influence in games. The only thing I'd add is that that's kind of been Millwall's season generally. That's kind of been most of their players' performances. And I think that's the reason why they are where they are, a point above the bottom three and in a run of form that that, that hasn't been good. Um the only thing I wonder is, I don't really know quite how you get more out of Zian. I would say that as a player, he he was one that sometimes wasn't always heavily ultra-involved, but would always, last season, pop up with key moments. He doesn't seem, I, I think I think you can make, maybe make the argument there could be a bit of a confidence issue, because generally, in the squad, because there's players that just don't look totally like they've got full belief there and that's going to happen when the team's not playing well. And in Zian's case, he's kind of been struggling to find some form. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, like I said, Dun Duncan Watmore the other night was probably one of their brighter attacking players. Dan Marsh thought that uh, in his match report, George Honeyman was his man of the match for the first half uh, because the first half was really where the best of their performance came. But the only other thing I'd add because I think I'm right in saying with, with, with Joe Edwards that of his games in charge, he's had four away, two at home. So your attacking players are going to get more on the ball in the home games. So maybe the Dem matches coming up are a chance, not only for Millwall to get a bit more confidence and belief, but also someone like Zian Fleming. But it'll be really interesting to see how he shapes it up for the Huddersfield game um, at the weekend. 
Yeah. Obviously, Sarkic has, has come back in for the two games recently after it was a quad injury which he picked up wasn't it which set sidelined him for a for a period um in Dan Marsh's match report I think he probably highlighted that that Sarkic may have been at fault for a handful of the goals against Leicester uh, I saw someone criticizing him for for the goal that they conceded on the weekend too so yeah I, I don't think many I think it'd be fair to say I don't think many expected Bart to, to drop out he'd been performing okay um didn't wasn't making sort of costly errors at the back so What's Sarkic's sort of position going into this weekend? Because they obviously bought him over the summer, big money signing in terms of Millwall for the goalkeeper position. Um, and Joe Edwards seems like he's chopping and changing in that area at the minute. Yeah, I think, well, I think when Joe came in, first of all, Sarkic was obviously out. And so mm. he, you know, Bart was the number one and, and, and sort of had to be the number one. And I say it like that, but obviously I think there was a little bit of a worry about Bart coming back into the team. Um, based off the Reading game uh, in the in the EFL Cup, uh, and and a sort of feeling perhaps that time had caught up with him a little bit. But Bart came back in, and actually, the the fears weren't realised really in terms of the way that he played. But the problem they've got is that Matthias Sarkic was a significant spend for Millwall. He was brought in as a number one goalkeeper, so he was always going to come back eventually. And he's been back in training, even for I think Joe Edwards said back at the time that he'd been training a little bit before he came, a couple of weeks before he came back into the team. The problem you've got is that when you look at it, the goal at the weekend is soft as hell. There's no getting away from that. And I think the first two goals, certainly he can do better, albeit that I asked Joe about this on uh, beginning of the week after the, the, the game against Cardiff. And he said, look, it's always kind of, the goalkeeper that gets sort of left hung out to dry on a goal. And he said there are a couple of other points in the build-up that we can defend the corner better. We can stop the ball that leads to the corner. So there's always sequences to these things. But it's a real, real testing uh, point for Matthias Sarkic now because if he keeps his place, um, then these next matches, there's going to be extra scrutiny on him. There's extra scrutiny on the team. And so... He's going to have to either sink or swim a little bit with the way that he performs. You know, you look at their next few games, they've got two teams that are below them in the table, Huddersfield at home and then QPR on Boxing Day at home. And they've got Stoke away, who are the position above them in the table. So really, as a team, not just Sarkic, they have got to start showing uh, their minerals. You know, they're going to have to start putting in big performances. And I think one of the big problems they've had this season is sometimes not the character as in that they, they're not trying, but I think when the chips are down, Millwall teams in the past have responded and we've got to see if this Millwall team have got that in their locker. If they haven't, talking very frankly, they're banging trouble. Uh, hmm. But we have got the January window coming. In saying that, it's never super easy, the January window. You know, Millwall aren't, lavish spenders like some clubs will be and you know it's there's going to be complications in the window put it that way because it's just never ever straightforward the January one yeah I was looking at Millwall's next round of games actually and I think apart from Norwich every sort of side is is in and around them in the table for these sort of next bunch of games you can't really sort of understate how massive these are for Joe Edwards and Millwall in making sure that the second half of the season isn't an absolute dogfight week in week out 
Yeah, I think the, the the absolute key thing as well. I mean, I haven't got it in front of me. It depends how quickly my internet works here. As I, <laughs> I, I try and never look at it, but if you look Dial at the home modem. form, yeah, that's 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 always the problem for me. But if you look at if you look at their home form this season, Millwall, that's that's a big big problem for them. They they beat Rotherham. It's arrived now. The the, the, the internet, the, the hamsters, running on that wheel as quick as it can. It's caught up. 20th of September is the last time the Millwall won a league game at home. 3-0 against Rotherham. Um, confident performance. Since then, they have lost uh, four and drawn two. Uh, so they've lost 3-0 twice at home to Swansea and Coventry. They also didn't score against Southampton. They did score against Blackburn, but lost 2-1. And then there's the two draws, 2-2 against Hull, 1-1 against Sunderland. But um, as you say, Huddersfield, QPR, Norwich at home uh, coming up before the end of the year. And yeah, they've got to they've got to find a way of making the home form better, because I think we said before, there were so many managers and they'll do it again. They'll come in at the weekend and say uh, it's a tough place to come. But it's um, at the moment, it's not necessarily proven to be that. So they've got to find a way of doing that. And the other big problem, of course, is if it doesn't change soon. Fans are going to be impatient. They're going to be unhappy. It's going to make it even. It's going to make it a more negative environment to play in. So that's going to make it extra difficult. You mentioned the January window a few moments ago. In terms of the paper and Millwall this week, there's something on the back page where you asked Joe Edwards about January transfer window plans. Yeah, I think the the key thing that he's talking about is that the January window is about adding quality that can impact them and then, which, you know, he was making the point that sometimes in the summer, there's a bit more of an overarching look at what you need sort of right now and against other bits and pieces. Um, but he has talked about the fact that the market is complex and he points to a couple of extra factors. And I think um, one of those is that um, the uh, amount of injuries that there have been across the board at clubs and obviously as we often touch on FPL, but if you look at Fantasy Premier League, loads of flags on there for players that are injured in the Premier League. And part of the thinking that behind that as to why there might be more is the extra stoppage time that's being played and the, the physical demands that there are. So Joe wasn't talking about FPL, but he was talking about the fact that, um, you know, when you look at it, that there might be clubs that they would let players out or the player wants to go out, but they might be held. And he also made the point with the African Cup of Nations, which is coming up, uh, which runs from uh, January 13th until February the 11th, I think. Uh, that, again, will take players out of the squads. And that will then again mean that you might not let players go out. So that's the kind of problem that you've got to deal with. But he has said that, you know, we're doing our best. They've got plans. They've got contingency plans. So they've got they've got options there. I, I think you'll find that they will definitely examine the Premier League loan market. I think you'll find that that will be one particular way they'll try and get into the action. Um, I don't necessarily think there'll be too much outgoing just because I don't think there'll be a market for it. So I think that might be a little bit little bit quieter, which then yeah. again can also impact what they do. Worth pointing out as well that they're badly missing. Casper uh, Delore at the moment, you know, again, his guile, his quality on the ball, he would help Joe Edwards probably implement a bit more what he wants to do. But fact of the matter is, he's probably not going to be back this year, and we don't know exactly when he's going to be back next year either. 
No, I was going to ask you how big of a miss do you think he's been in general because hit the ground running coming in over the summer was probably arguably player of the season perhaps in terms of the consistency he was delivering. So just how big of a miss. It's not really helpful, is it, to Joe Edwards? Yeah, going through a tough run, coming into a new job and you're losing arguably your, your player of the season to start with. It doesn't rain, but it pours really, doesn't it? Yeah, he's not had it easy, I don't think, really, with, with, with that injury. And he's not totally had it easy with the fixtures either, I wouldn't say. I mean, the Sheffield Wednesday won that 4-0 win. Um, you know, it's a dream start. But then you look at the games they've had and, you know, Ipswich and Leicester, the two teams that are absolutely steamrolling the rest of the league. I mean, Leeds slipping up in midweek and the gap's widened. Uh, is there both of those as away games? Cardiff, not an easy away game. Uh, so he's had... He's had difficult matches and, as you say, he's not had one of his best players. The other player that we haven't seen enough of so far is Joe Bryan. Um, indications from Joe Edwards is that he could be back in the squad for the game against Huddersfield. That was earlier in the week. Um, but he's had a couple of groin injuries that have affected him. And I think one of the things that having Joe Bryan fit and fully firing, as I know he can be as a Fulham fan, is that he gives you another outlet. And the other night, going back to the other night, Brook Norton Cuffey, people, I think people were mentioning they didn't see so much offensively of him, but he was up against Mavadidi. And by and large, he did a really good job on Mavadidi, but it negated the stuff he can do in the final third going forward, because obviously he was playing as a right wing back, but more defensive duties. And I just think for some of these games coming up, if Joe Bryan can be back and is fit and is able to get into some kind of form that we know he's capable of, he can really help the system kind of work better. Join us in part two, where we're going to jump into what's going on at Charlton Athletic. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press football pod. We're going to start with a question on Charlton Athletic, Rich. Um, Monty Streak wants to know, well, he he says that it's been implied by some fans that the relationship between Scott and Appleton is, is somewhat frosty, maybe after... Michael Appleton's post-match quotes from the 2-2 draw against Cambridge on, on Saturday. I'm not sure what, if, you, if there's anything you know about that or whether there's anything you can sort of divulge about it. Um, I, I think I know where this is coming from because I was in the press room at the time. And <laughs> when you're sat there, your ears perk up at certain comments that managers make. And uh, Michael Appleton was asked a question about Alfie May and how important um, he would be to sort of Charlton if they got promoted and wanted to build. And it seemed a bit sort of ahead, sort of, you know, a bit too far ahead in terms of what could happen because there's plenty of work for Charlton to even be in the playoffs. And Michael Appleton turned it round and said, uh, it would be stupid of me uh, and daft of me not to say that if we're going to have, this is him being quoted, by the way, mm. that if we're going to have any chance of getting out of this league, whether this season, the next or the one after, the transfer windows are massive. And the next bit is the bit that I think um, is felt to be a, a bit of a dig. He said, and let's face it, they have to be a million times better than they have been the last couple of windows. Um, and he said, um, if they aren't better, he said, then we'll be where we've been for the past two or three seasons and just be a mid-table team. I don't want that. I've not come here to do that. So that's what he said. Um, in terms of uh, whether there is a, a strain and, and so on, not that I'm aware of. I mean, one of the things that I think potentially as well is that M Michael Appleton sort of, if you read, managers kind of sometimes talk sort of coded or expect people to read between the lines. And the one thing you can be sure of is 
Michael Appleton's mentioned, mentioned the transfer re window regularly, and he's made it pretty clear that the squad at his current disposal is not shaped to his requirements. So that's where he's kind of at. Now, whether someone had said as well, whether those comments play out that well with players who might think, right, he doesn't fancy me, you know, he doesn't want me in the team, I'm not going to try so hard or I'm not, you know, I'm going to down tools. I'm not necessarily sure that's applicable. But what I would say is I think the feeling probably from the club side was that it was a bit of frustration um, after the game. We just chartered the 2-0 up. They look to have the points in the bag. They then concede from, direct from a corner in the 87th minute, I think it was off the top of my head. And they then concede a penalty, which is outside the area. I mean, some of the officiating is just so crap, basically, um, at, at lower levels. And Tyo Adun's tackle, you know, when you look at it back, even when I'm watching it, I wasn't sure it was inside the box. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that, that the manager comes in afterwards and they're frustrated. I think talking about previous transfer windows, I think moving forward, the next few are really going to be indicative of what the new ownership and Andy Scott can actually do. Um, I mean, they had to kind of, part of what they're having to do at the moment is kind of get rid of some of the older players, the players they inherited, to then free up money to bring players in. So in the situation of Ewan O'Connell and Jaden Stockley, they had to move on. And that then cleared money eventually in the summer for, for, for Alfie May to come in and people like Lloyd-Jones. So some of the signings, they I don't think you can say that they've all been bad because I think Lloyd-Jones, he was missing with an injury at the weekend, but he was, uh, I, I think he's been a good signing so far. I think he's looked very, very good at that level. Obviously, Alfie May, I think now is 19 off the top of my head uh, in all competitions. So, and people like Tyo Adun and Tanai Watson, again, they're kind of still bedding in a bit. So, um, I mean, Adun, I think, I, I would say that I think he's defensively quite, well, I don't have the right words, rash, but I think he's quite aggressive attacking-wise. And I think that does potentially leave him with challenges defensively. But I think if you look at Michael Appleton teams, he tends to have very, quite offensive fullbacks. So, I think Adun, again, potentially could still work in that system. So mm. I don't necessarily think that there's some major problem, albeit when he made the comments, you think, and, and looking at it in written format, it, um, it, it sort of looks that way. Um, the interesting thing was, is that he didn't mention it really early in the press conference. Some of those managers want to get stuff. When you listen to managers post-match, like say you listen to a radio interview they've done, and then they come in and speak to the written press, you'll often find they pretty much get exactly the same points across. And despite the fact that you, you might have the odd question that gets them into an area they don't want to get to, but I imagine before they come in, they think, right, I want to be talking about this, this and this. It didn't feel like it was because it was quite a way into the interview. It was probably, I don't know, I think it was a 16-minute press conference, which was quite long for, for Michael, post-match that is. And I think it was probably about 11, 12 minutes into it. So if he wanted to get it out as a point to make, he made it very late on when there wasn't always a chance it was going to be used. But of course, I was sat there, and um, you know, you you know, it's it's a talking point, and it was a talking point with supporters. To me, it felt like the comments were maybe arrowed, perhaps at not the two sort of recent transfer windows where Charleston built up their squad and tried to clear out the deadwood. It was well, deadwood, but the players on higher wages who needed to move on. Really, it feels like it was comments. At, 
previous transfer windows before that where the squad sort of stagnated a little bit maybe and he's left with a few players still there um he wants to get rid of them perhaps and and he's thinking about how he can sort of rejuvenate this squad going into the the final six months of the season yeah exactly and i think i think i think the thing is as well is the thomas sangard um ownership period you can get different answers on that as to who's in charge of of what uh, it all becomes very grey in terms of um, obviously Thomas Sangard's son Martin was involved on the recruitment side along with Steve Gallen, and I think the sort of feeling, and I think it was proven, was that if you if you disputed what the Sangard said or didn't do what they wanted you to do in, in any particular position, then you didn't last any length of time at all. So um, I think in terms of past recruitments, I think. What you tend to find, and I've said this before, is that good signings, everyone's putting their hand up and saying they were involved in it, like a Conor Gallagher. And then the ones that aren't very good, people say, it wasn't me, it was X, or it wasn't me, yeah. it was Y. So they've got those problems. What's not in dispute, really, is that they made some bad signings. You know, Charlie Kirk could still come good somewhere, but it's not going to probably be at Charlton. I think might well be a likelihood that that's resolved in January. Might well be that there's kind of some agreement in place. I'm not saying it will happen, but I think it could. You've got other players. Jack Payne wasn't a bad signing, by the way. He's contributed more, but he's out on loan. That's got no break in it. By the end of that, he's out of contract. Uh, uh, DJ Darling Jossimi, uh, again, there's no break in his loan uh, to his Scottish club uh, that he's at. So that will just naturally expire. I think DJ's out of contract after that. So that's another player you get off the wage bill. Um, So there's a few players that will be will be sort of coming off the wage bill. But equally, this is always the problem with signing players. If you make bad decisions at whatever level, um, if those players don't play well for whatever reason, you're left you're left with them. And mm. no club's got an infinite amount of money. They're just going to keep throwing money and throwing money and making their squad bigger and bigger. So um, the thing that's going to be interesting as well um, is the loan signings. I think we spoke about it before that, They've been a bit hit and miss, and uh, um, I was speculating what could happen with some of those in January. I think it's a fairly good bet that, uh, well, we saw this week there was a report in the um, Irish media that Jameson Bankwer was set to go back to Udinese. That that will happen, that's for sure. Um, I think there's a, a very good chance you'll see uh, Slobodan Tedic going back to Man City. I think there's a break in that particular deal. Uh, I think there's also uh, the option of a break in the Chem Campbell uh, loan from Wolves. So again, if Charlton want to, they can send him back, although Chem Campbell started and scored at the weekend. But he's been fairly marginal under Michael Appleton. And I think Panucho Camera, I think potentially that's one that uh, Charlton won't have that option. Um, so it then really depends exactly when Chem Campbell's going to be back. I mean, I think it's looking like potentially it could be around February time. So if he does get fit, uh, Panucci Camera after that, I think he's got a chance of um, of, of being back for that yeah. period. So, uh, and obviously we've got, well, he's the transfer person, but Chooks and EK indications are probably sort of end of Jan that he could be back in the group as well. So there's some, there's some bits of, sort of uh, housekeeping to do. Louis Watson's another loan. I think he had to play a set amount of games to effectively prevent a recall. I think he's gone past that. And I think, again, that's Louis Watson's one I expect 
to stay. Again, hasn't always been starting of late. So that's a little bit, a little bit of an update on 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 that. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, that's where we're at with things. In terms of the sort of striker position, I asked Michael Appleton last week for the paper about about Miles Lieber, and he said he doesn't expect him to be sort of back before the end of the season, and that Miles should target a, a return in preseason. So that rules one out. Chucks and Ike's obviously had his, his injury problems, and if Tedic goes back to Manchester City, that leaves them a little bit light in that position, doesn't it? And with Alfie May sort of being, well, Appleton preferring Alfie May out on the wing, that could that is almost like a highlighted area straight away where you see Charlton in the January window sort of trying to strengthen. Yeah, I think um, I think it was too. I, I think a while back I had a message from someone. I, I was asking what Charlton were looking for, and I think it was a couple of strikers that were on that list. So that makes sense, especially if Tenich does end up um, heading back to, to Man- Manchester City. Um, you've also got the option that something could happen with Corey Blackett Taylor. Seemed to be it was kind of bizarre actually. We put something out at the uh, weekend when Michael couldn't really give any more of an update and. Um, uh, some of the fans were sort of, there was at least some of them saying, we should just get rid, you know, we should, he's no big loss sort of thing. And I find it a bit strange really, because, you know, his record, I think he's now got six goals, six assists. He got the assist for Chem Campbell's goal um, at the weekend. The problem with Corey, it seems, is that we reported it at the time that Derby were interested in the summer uh, window. Um, Charlton, there was no deal done then, but I think it might be difficult for Charlton to get to some of the levels of, of, of uh, interest that are out there. I don't, I don't think Derby will have gone away. Paul Warren's still the manager. They're still right in the playoff hunt. Um, so the question becomes in January, I think, if you can get a decent little wedge of money for him, as long as you can get a replacement, do you, do you sell Corey? Albeit he's probably been one of their better performers this season. Um, had also been some indications that there could be um, some some overseas interest in him as well, which if that happens, obviously he could sign a pre-contract in January. So again, mm. that becomes maybe becomes slightly problematic because if he does do that, then he's already effectively sealed his next move. But I guess we'll have to see on that one. But I think he's, he's another potential. When we talk about offensive players, he does contribute quite a lot. So... I think he's he's someone to factor in as well. As to who they get, I don't know in terms of when we talk about strikers, the sort of indications I've had is that they're going to look to, they want to make permanent signings in January. I don't think they really want to go down the loan market as much as they have done. Um, and I think they want to sort of begin to build so they haven't got the same kind of player turnover they've had in recent years. So whether that happens... I don't think they're discounting loans if they have to go down that route, but it doesn't sound like the air, the, the way they want to go if they can help it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of on the pitch, you were at the game at the Valley on Saturday. Obviously, a two-goal lead slip against Neil Harris's Cambridge side. What did you make of it? Uh, first half was terrible. I, I was sat there. Um, I was feeling a little bit delicate after the Christmas party. <laughs> and the football did not do anything to stop me thinking that I didn't feel one million percent. Um, so that probably tells you a bit about that. Um, uh, the second half, um, second half I thought was, 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 was kind of, was, was better from Charlton. And once they got into that two goal lead, I couldn't see 
Cambridge coming back. Um, I mean, Neil Harris said that Neil Harris said afterwards that uh, Cambridge could have had three or four goals up uh, by half time. But I mean, the the XG, I, I can't remember what it was at the time, but it really, really didn't suggest that in the slightest. Um, but um, yeah, they had it. They had it sort of nailed and then let it slip. And the uh, Gasson had my scores with a free header from a corner. Charlton have just. Charlton have not been good at corners and set pieces, dealing with them, defending from them or scoring for them really for so long now. And that's a huge thing they have to get right. I mean, Dean Holden said it was going to be a priority towards the back end of last season. And the reality is they've got they've got no better at them really. Um, so 2-2, it could be costly at the end of the season if it comes down to, to fine margins and, and particularly when Charlton are chasing. The only thing I would add is that they're... Um, I'm beating one, two, three, four, five games. So five hmm. games, three draws. Um, you know, if they'd won at the weekend, again, the points return under Michael Appleton would have suggested that they had a really, really good go at it. They've got three of their next four away. Uh, Barnsley, Orient on Boxing Day and Bristol Rovers. And then back home to Oxford on um, Jan 1st. So one, two, three, four, five games in a pretty short space of time. And again, it just underlines when you haven't got striker options, you just got to hope that Alfie May can can play a lot of minutes because you take him out of that team and it, it, it would worry you. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the paper in Charleston this week, an interview with Michael Hector, and I believe you asked him about his, his sort of addict's future going into the summer. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the caveat to this is that, you know, he said he'd love to stay and I think he would, but <laughs> I, it's the classic thing you read it we, we do it as journalists you ask these questions and like no one's going to say I don't want to be here or well I'd like to go there or a bit like when you ask managers certain questions it's like what they say but and what they what they mean are two separate things but I don't mean that with Michael Hector in that sense but he he said he loves it at the club it's he says it, it's really local for him and his family he said he's enjoyed every minute of um, his time here both last season and this season Talks a bit in the piece about um, not starting under Dean Holden at the beginning of the season. Um, and he also talks about the fact that he really kind of enjoys uh, being a bit of a, a sort of sounding board and a, a sort of big brother figure, I guess, to some of the younger players in the squad. So um, he's, I think the last couple of games, he's he's played pretty solidly. And I think... Um, with Lucas Ness not really kicking on this season, um, it's made, meant that sort of Hector and Lloyd Jones have definitely been the preferred pair in there. So yeah, that's in the that's in the paper as well. And he also talks about. I asked him about Michael Appleton's comments about the transfer window, and he talks about he talks about that like in terms of additions and, and that side of it as well. So yeah, that's in that's in the paper today. I'm Zion Fleming, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part three of the South London Press Football Pod. We just had a little mini break, and while we while you were away, Ed, I'm going to show you. I've been eating my Advent calendar. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit behind by about three or four days. So, and to be fair, I'm showing you it's a Cadbury's Dairy Milk that my wife got me, and the chocolates are so small in there, it's unbelievable. Really? <laughs> what I've done is partly being forgetful, but secondly, if I sort of stockpile, I get a decent hit of chocolate rather than just a tiny piece of chocolate every day have you got an advent calendar is what i want to know 
what do you think, Rich? Do you think I have an advent calendar? I reckon because you are a gym gym god, yeah. <laughs> I reckon you probably don't touch chocolate whatsoever. No, I haven't had an advent calendar for oof, three years, I reckon. Um, hopefully, once in the future, when I have the dream sort of dad bod kids and stuff like that, advent calendars will be bought on a regular basis. But um, no, at the moment... If they did like a pre-workout one where I could take a shot of pre-workout from it every day, then maybe. But no, chocolate advent calendars is not on the the diet at the moment. Funnily enough, a few years back, I did also get one that was a protein one. And it really? Had like a protein, okay. right, but they were super small, so you can get them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we digress. On to Crystal Palace Football Club. And obviously, um, at the moment, Adam Sells will be heading up to the Etihad on... Saturday, and if he took his uh, boots and even his gloves with him, actually, he might have a chance of uh, being included. Because I, I think you can tell us it's um, bare bones and bare bones, really, for Palace. It seems like setback after setback in terms of selections and injuries. It is. I think they've got around 11 players out through injury and suspension uh, heading into this weekend at the Etihad. I think someone tagged Selzy in a tweet, which was, mocking up the team and, and Selzy was actually in goal and he uh, and he said there's no bother for, for Erling not to turn up this weekend because he's going to keep a clean sheet so uh, yeah that's probably all the amusement in terms of Crystal Palace and injuries at the moment it's you know the, the Liverpool performance was was a much much better display compared to the Bournemouth one the, the Wednesday before but what added a sort of real sucker punch blow to to the result was that Jefferson Lerma Sam Johnston and Alton Edward all went off with separate injury problems. Now it sounds like I, I, I don't think any, all of those three are going to be fit and available for for Saturday. It sounds like maybe just one week or two weeks for Max for all of them. But when you're looking at Crystal Palace's squad, considering it was it was dangerously light to begin with, when you're missing all these key players as well, it, it doesn't make for good reading. Um, Remy Matthews had to come on at 29 for his Crystal Palace and, and Premier League debut in goal. Um, but in terms of experience at Premier League in the sort of goalkeeper department, Joe Whitworth with, with two Premier League appearances he made last season was the one where you're thinking he's got the most experience in the top flight and he's only 19. Um, Dean Henderson is is fighting to make a a case to start this weekend. I think he's been in some sort of, well, he's been in individual training for a while. I think he's back in sort of full, full-ish training. It's just whether Palace are going to try and rush him back a, a week or so prior before they sort of scheduled him to return just so they can have a experienced goalkeeper in the Premier League terms between the sticks on, on Saturday. Um, obviously, he suffered that, that thigh injury in his debut against Manchester United in the EFL Cup in defence. Tyreek Mitchell, the club's only fit and recognised sort of left-back, is injured. So Nathaniel Klein has had to fill in there. He obviously did a sterling job on Mohamed Salah on on Saturday. Uh, wasn't at fault for any of the goals. They put in a really good performance. Mark Gay, he was limping around um, towards the end of the game as well. I mean, Hodgson's had to actually block players in the youth sort of set up from playing in an under-21 game on Monday night because he can't afford any more risk to his squad. Frank Oma, Ola Adebomi, Teo, uh, Adaramola, Sean Grennan, Joe Whitworth, uh, they've all been, David Ozo as well, they've all been with the first team this week training. Um, in terms of experience, you're looking at it and the game against Nottingham Forest, I think Hodgson had to name four academy players on the bench. You might have to name more this weekend and it arguably could be Crystal Palace's most inexperienced Premier League squad since promotion back to the, the top division. So, um, 
yeah, it makes for for grim reading, and especially when uh, Pep Guardiola comes out a couple of days before and says that Erling Haaland might be fit for, for the game on Saturday. So, um, yeah, in terms of Crystal Palace and injuries, I think they've had thirty separate injuries this season. Ebrichieze still hasn't um, shaken off the ankle ligament damage he picks up against Luton. Shek Decore is obviously a, lo- a long term problem. He's probably out for the whole campaign. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it reads like an episode of Casualty. It's it's not uh, it's not particularly fun for Roy Hodgson at the moment when he's when he's looking at a team selection. But you'd expect Remy Matthews probably to if if Dean Henderson isn't available, Remy Matthews ahead of Joe Whitworth in terms of obviously he wasn't he wasn't available last season, was he? Because he was out on loan. Mm. Yeah, no, that would be. Well, I mean, in terms of Remy's football league experience, you know, twenty nine played a, a multitude of games across many different divisions in in England and in Scotland as well. So um, he'd be the one I think Roy Podgson would be looking at. I can't imagine he'd, he'd look to Joe Whitworth to start the game, but I think there's a fighting chance that that Dean Henderson does try and play in this this game on Saturday. I think there's a, a fair sort of joint effort to to make sure he's available for it. So um, we'll have to see what the what the team sheet looks like at two pm on Saturday. As you say, I was looking at your player ratings and you gave. Quite a few. You mentioned about Nathaniel Klein, but you gave uh, you gave him an eight. You gave Jefferson Lerma an eight. You also mm. gave Joel Ward an eight as well. So there was yeah. uh, generally across the board there were some pretty good ratings for them, weren't they? Really, in terms of how you assessed how they did against Liverpool. Yeah, I, I actually thought that was Joel Ward's best performance in a Crystal Palace shirt for a, for a long, long time. I think if you're looking at previous games, Burnley, where Luca Coliosho absolutely tore him apart and he had to be subbed off. He was subbed off the game before against Bournemouth as well because he was struggling up against Clive Semenyo and and Etal, the players who sort of came on and 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 replaced the front three for for Bournemouth, and he had to come off because at times he really struggles with the pace and directness of players in the Premier League. But against Liverpool, Joel Ward was was excellent, clearance after clearance, winning multiple aerial battles, um, and that's the sort of thing with Joel Ward. You know, it's it's not always going to be a a pretty performance, but you know he's going to put his body on the line to try and win you points in the Premier League. And I think that's why it hasn't necessarily always been a, a huge concern that Palace haven't replaced the right-back starting spot. But there's been too many times in recent performances where you're looking at it and so he can be at fault for, for one or one goal, one slip-up, which led to, led to a goal. So I think that's an area that Crystal Palace will need to address in the summer, particularly. Um, but Jefferson Lerma has been such a shrewd signing, Rich. I can't begin to sort of put into words how good this this guy is in terms of Premier League experience. And this is what Crystal Palace lacks. It lacks players in, in wide positions who have the experience of the Premier League to come in and do the job. At the moment, there's too much reliance on Mateus Francher, Ahamada, when he comes on and he looks lost at times in Premier League games. Um, you know, these guys aren't ready to be starting Premier League games. If they were doing it week in, week out in training, I can assure you Roy Hodgson would be putting him into the starting lineup without any hesitation. Um, but he doesn't trust them. He can't trust them to do the job. That's why Jeffrey Schlupp and Jordan Ayew are in consistent performances week out, week, week in, week out. Um, obviously, Jordan Ayew is suspended for this trip to Manchester City after picking up a somewhat harsh second yellow. I think the, the second yellow is more based on the rotational fouling that Crystal Palace were, were pulling out. And I think the referee got fed up of it. His first yellow card, I know Roy Hodgson wasn't particularly happy with Virgil van Dijk's role in it, but Ayu jumps in the way of the football to stop the quick free, t- free kick being taken. So I don't think he can have any sort of qualms with that one. Uh, second one, slightly harsh, but as I said, rotational fouling, referee fed up and, and it sort of got to that position. Um, but yeah, the performance against Liverpool was 
vastly improved to to what they put out against Bournemouth, where the the, the team were booed off. You know, at half time you could tell it was a much better performance because they were roundly applauded for their efforts. Um, you can't fault anything in terms of the the work rate and an aptitude that they put into it. Just missing that quality really up front um, and in the wide positions. Michael Lise obviously had to have his minutes managed as well. He was in the sort of quote unquote red zone in terms of coming back from his hamstring surgery. Um, and then you've got Brighton on the Thursday night just before Christmas, which could really set the tone for where Crystal Palace are going to be in terms of the second half of the season. Well, that's what I was going to ask, actually. That was going to be one of my next questions because we I don't know when we're going to do the pod next week, but it's probably not going to be the Friday. Uh, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe we need to have a think about that. But... Mm. Um, as we said, this might be our, our chance to talk about that. I mean, it's right up on the, it's right coming up, isn't it? And uh, it's unlikely that Palace are going to have huge personnel boosts in that time, isn't it, as well? So yeah. you go into it quite restricted. Yeah, I think they're going to it flat, flat already before it's even, the, the game's even begun. Um, Bryson obviously flying, already qualified for the next stages of the, the Europa League, um, doing very, I don't think they've been doing as well in the league as they did last season, but you look at it with the European sort of jaunts as well. It's always going to happen. Um, I said this the other day to, I think it was to Selzy, Would I, I imagine if you told Roy Hodgson he was only going to have Michael Elise and Ebrichierze on the pitch for the same time but for around something like 75 minutes, something like that for, for an entire Premier League campaign heading into January, he probably would have thought 10 times about taking the job before he actually did. Palace's squad is it's not good enough for, for being in the Premier League. You know, I think they gambled quite heavily on the fact that there were probably three worst teams who were destined to go straight back down. But Luton looked like they're putting up a fight. They did really well against Palace and they've done really well against Manchester City and Liverpool at home. Sheffield United have brought Chris Wilder back in and they won a game of football against Brentford. Palace's run of fixtures pretty pretty daunting now. Brighton, Brentford, Chelsea... And Arsenal, so and obviously Everton in the FA Cup as well. Um, so it's it doesn't get any easier for for Roy Hodgson, and um, you know it's one win in eight at the moment. It could easily be one win in twelve at this rate because the squad isn't the squad isn't good enough to compete at this level. Just while I'm talking about player ratings, have you ever given a ten in our in our ratings at all, or not when we've done it? No, I haven't. I gave Jefferson Lerma a nine for his debut against. Sheffield uh, United but I think maybe last season I gave a couple of nines out as well um, during that sort of 10 game run under Roy Hodgson I think maybe Michael Elise might have and Ebert Chiesa have got nines now I've never given a 10 I see I see myself as a little bit fairer than Lequeep who gives sevens out as a sort of as a as a kind gesture but um, yeah no maybe someone will get will get a 10 one day we'll see would you ever just, get, is, there, is there any performance you can think of at the top of your head where you thought that person's deserved a, a 10 out of 10? You know what? We used to have player ratings in the paper years ago as well, and I think it caused a huge amount of trouble with players. Um, and particularly, I think if you do player ratings and you speak to those players regularly, which isn't something that with Crystal Palace, you're not really going to be sat down the training ground all the time with mm. them having a chat. It's just not the reality of the way Premier League clubs work. So, uh, But I think with other clubs it can be a bit of a problem. Uh, so um, that's a bit of a sort of side point. In terms of what I, I possibly have given a 10 here or there, but it's it's got to be like, it's, it's it's almost unobtainable, really. I think if someone scores, I guess if you've got a player that scores three, four goals mm. in a game, 
you're always going to be tempted to go down that route. But um, yeah, it's. I, I just wonder because markings can be so sort of subjective to that person and. Uh, one of my one of the guys that worked at our place before he used to get ridiculed fairly regularly uh, for how generous he was with his ratings, even in sort of bad games and things like that. So you've got the two different sides. You've got people that are real harsh markers, and then you've got the people that you'd like to have read your exam papers and things like that. So yeah, uh, yeah interesting. Uh, one other bit to touch on with Palace, you you did a story um, uh, earlier this weekend saying that Palace are kind of. Uh, uh, the front runners at the moment to land a player that's that's catching the eye lower down the leagues. What can you tell us? Yeah, so there's a 17 year old centre back who, who's playing his trade for for Rochdale at the moment called George Nevert, and uh, Crystal Palace are currently leading the chase to sign him in the January window. I understand that the plans would sort of be to buy him and then loan him back to Rochdale um, for the rest of the season. Uh, but Palace are sort of facing some stiff competition. The likes of Newcastle, Southampton have both been in touch with trying to to prize him away from Rochdale so as uh Crystal Palace have 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 been used to sort of buying these players who I think their new sort of model is is looking at players playing senior minutes at a very young age and thinking these guys are going to be worth a good punt because you often think managers with jobs on the line at the lower divisions aren't necessarily going to be throwing youngsters in unless they're absolutely sure that they can do the job week in week out and uh you know Killian Phillips Dylan Reed uh, Justin Deveni the, the sort of list is endless at the moment. Kofi Barmer, who players who Crystal Palace are taking punts on. And um, yeah, George Nevitt could be the, the next in line. He's very highly rated. Just got into the Wales under-19 squad for the first time at 17, playing every week for Rochdale. I think he had something around 30 scouts come and watch him at one of his previous games. So this kid is is tipped for big things. And um, yeah, Palace are the current front runners to land him. But obviously a lot can change in... 16 days before the January transfer window opens, oh, that's, that is a daunting thought for, for the next month. But uh, yes, it's uh, there's, there's definitely a, a good opportunity that Crystal Palace could could land George Nevert in the upcoming window. I'm Jake Cooper, and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part four, and we're on to AFC Wimbledon. And um, decent uh, little story for you this weekend on the back page um, relating to Johnny Jackson, who... His current deal runs until the summer. Um, mm. You've asked him about whether he would want to extend it. And um, maybe you could just give us a bit of an idea of the sort of general gist of what he was saying. Yeah, similar to the sort of Michael Hector thing um, that you were mentioning a few moments ago. I got the feeling when I asked Johnny Jackson the question, he actually does want to stay. He wants to sort of build something here at AFC Wimbledon. I think he's shown when he has the tools at his disposal that that he can put a good squad together in this division. Um, obviously, last season, heading into January, they put together this really good 10-game unbeaten run and um, heading into January, thought that everyone was going to stay, all the good loanies, and then they were all plucked away and Ibisal, the sort of star player, was sold to Qatari side Al-Akra Al for 1.2 million, a club record, and then it fell away for them in the second half of the season. Heading into the summer, major squad surgery was was required. It happened. Wimbledon hit the ground running and they're doing well this campaign. They're inside the playoff positions. Um, they've already scored more goals at home than they did last season. Um, they're doing really, really well. Only top joint top as well in terms of clean sheets in, in the league. And Johnny Jackson told us that he hopes talks can, can sort of commence soon over extending his stay at Plough Lane. Um, 
in general, though, we spoke to to Johnny Jackson about kind of the season so far. Yeah, the loan he's have been a big part of their success. Alex Bass, Joe Lewis on loan from Stockport, and Connor Evans on loan from Stockport as well. Um, these guys have been have been real sort of loan sensations for AFC Wimbledon. Um, Alex Bass has been phenomenal, making himself first choice between the sticks. Joe Lewis, a rock at the back alongside Ryan Johnson. Um, it's funny, you know, I talk about Jochem Anderson and Mark Gahey's partnership. I sort of see those two as similar. The, you know, the, the way that they can, one goes forward, one stays back. The, one, the, way, the way that they read the game together is really impressive. So um, John Jackson's confident that these guys will be staying, see out the, the sort of loan stints and they won't be recalled in the in the January window, he, he said you're obviously at the sort of the whim of the the parent club on these, but every all the feedback that they're getting is that these guys will be staying for the season, and I think they're really enjoying it as well. Obviously, you can't you know, if a team higher up the football pyramid comes in for them, it's going to be always hard to say no. But you get the sense that something a little bit special might be happening this season for for Wimbledon. Um, earlier in the season, I was looking and thinking they're they're a tiny bit streaky. They go on these good sort of runs and then they fall away a little bit but recently they've sort of leveled out and found a good way of winning football games and finding some real goals as well uh Ali Alhamidi got another brace on the weekend in the 4-0 win against Swindon um which saw five AFC Wimbledon players named in the league two team of the week with Jackson being named as manager of the week um problem is heading into January Ali Alhamidi will be going away for the Asia Cup severe interest in him across across the championship and league one Jack Curry, some real interest from him as well. And a team in League One are, are quite sort of hotly pursuing him. Um, so whether that will happen or not remains to be seen. But if I was a player looking at it, you'd be thinking there's a um, good opportunity to try and build something here at AFC Wimbledon. Um, Jackson, Jackson, in terms of what Jackson was also mentioning, um, he's been, he left James Tilly out of the past two starting lineups, which James Tilly hit the ground running when he joined from Crawley over the summer. But he's got such fast options at his disposal. He's got two players for every position. So he can bring in a Connor Evans, a Josh Neufeld, and uh, and they can perform an equally good job and help Wimbledon see out the game. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it was an interesting sort of conversation with Jackson, touching on where they are in the season, where he sees things going forward in January especially. So, um, yeah, definitely worth a, a read if I do say so myself. It's definitely a, a, a occupational hazard of having loans, really, that... Hmm. You know they can they can go back. I remember a few years back when Pumington did particularly well at Wimbledon in the first half of the loan, and then um, Charlton came in and took him for the rest of that season. Um, which I think, off the top of my head, but that was a season that Ben obviously um, scored at Wembley and, and and Charlton went up. So it's kind of it's just that kind of yeah risk that you've got the risk reward really if a loan player does that well. It's, you, you've got you stand the risk that a bigger club or another club's going to come in and try and cherry pick them. Interestingly, Johnny Jackson, I've just counted it down, he's 24th longest serving manager in the top four divisions in England. So, um, hasn't been Wimbledon manager for that long, but it tells you no. quite a bit about the the kind of way that things work in, in football generally. But Wimbledon have shown in the past with some of the managers they've had that they do give them time. Obviously, Neil Ardley was successful, wasn't he? But he got plenty of time and it's, it's quite difficult for managers to get that opportunity to build something. So I can understand why, why, why Jacko would be, would, would be really keen to stay and kind of carry on what he's, what he's building. I think he was quite open in the quotes, wasn't he talking about, you know, I, I think he was fully aware that at another club, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to see out last season. You know, there were some real bad times at AFC Wimbledon in the last campaign. Fans chanting, we want Jackson out, booing the team off some 
really harrowing performance as well. I think it was the 5-1 against Swindon, which if you look at it in the contrast, the 4-0 against Swindon just shows on last weekend just shows how much this team's evolved and how much Jackson's taking it forward. Um, you know, there, there were probably loud calls for him to go throughout the second half of last season. And even at the start of this campaign, fans weren't probably 100% settled on him being the, the manager of the football club. I remember the uh, the sort of end of season awards last season. Um, fans were asking why he wasn't so am- animated on the touchline and things like that. It just didn't feel like a good fit. But now he's got this team that he's built over the summer alongside Craig Cope. And you just think it all just works a little bit. It all just feels like he's, you know, he's attending Youth Cup games for the future. Seeing He's including players like Kai Jennings on the bench and then giving them minutes here and there. And that's for his own benefit moving forward. So there's, uh, it feels like something's being built. It, you, you, I'm sort of loathe to, to say that something special can happen because, you know, AFC Wimbledon, I don't really want to get too carried away because they they do go on these runs of good performances and and dips again. But there is a good core squad there, a good good, good core of 11 players who are good enough to to win promotion. So anything can happen. It's just just about finding four. I think January will be a big month for them, losing Ali to the Asia Cup and whether he gets sold or not. Um, You know, their past two seasons have have all hinged on the deals they've done in January, selling Oli Palmer to Wrexham broke them selling Ibisau last season broke them they don't want to make the same mistake three times in a row and uh, I think that'll be crucial for AFC Wimbledon and obviously um, up at Salford City on Saturday we've got Dave mm. Hunt-Jackson at that game for us so we'll have his sort of takeaways on the website but as you say important to keep going I was just having a quick look at the form guide for the last six matches Wimbledon actually ninth because they they have lost um, three games in that period, but they've won the mm. others. So that gives them nine points, but Barrow top with 16. Wrexham, who we always knew were going to be up there, 13. Uh, Mansfield still still there with 13 as well. So, like you say, they've, they've crept in there, but they've just got to, they've just got to kind of try and get themselves a bit a bit more in those playoff positions because uh, there's a bit of a, a bit of a gap to make up on the teams above them. Yeah, a couple of the signing of the seasons for me, for them, have been managing to convince Jake Reeves after winning promotion from Stevenage to to come back to the football club and to sort of set the culture and the tone for the rest of the squad, handing him the captaincy straight away. Um, he's obviously set to make his 150th appearance for the football club across two, well, two, three spells. It might be two spells, definitely, in terms of permanent transfer. I think he joined initially on loan before making it permanent. Um, he's set to make his 150th appearance this weekend. And Omar Bagel as well, it sort of goes unnoticed the amount of work he puts in. I think when I see him, um, really allows Ali Alhamidi to to do what he can do. Brings the other wingers into play to set up chances. He's getting a few more goals to his name. I think Jackson was really pleased with the goal he got on Saturday against Swindon because it was a real poacher's finish. And he said he argues with him all the time, telling him he needs to be in the box in and around the area because he's a really good technical player. Um, like he pulled out a Traveller in his first goal for the club after Tranmere, and there's lots to like about the way that he plays. So. Um, yeah, as I as I mentioned before, this is a really good squad. It's just about finding the consistency to to close the gap now because there's a slight little gap between the teams ahead of them. I think it's five or so points that they've got to try and make up, which is easily done. Um, they just need to go on a good a good running run. We're going to bring a close episode uh, a close to episode eight of the South London Press Football Pod. Rich, thank you very much for joining me. Which game are you at this weekend? I will be at Millwall on Saturday. So, yeah. um, big, big game, big, big game. They're yeah. getting away from it. So, uh, fingers crossed they, they get the result. 
That's that's yeah. that's what that's obviously. I'm not saying every listener will necessarily think that, but um, <laughs> yeah, always don't always want to see our teams do well. So um, yeah, that's 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 where I'll be. We're still waiting for a week where all four have uh, have collected wins, but the clean sweep, the golden yeah. clean sweep, yeah. Maybe it'll be this weekend, Ed. Maybe, maybe it will happen, and a, a threadbare Palace will shock Manchester City, who are still Erling Haalandless. Um, could you know? Stranger things have happened. I would not put the mortgage on it. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for everyone for listening, and speak soon.